This is Dr. Armin Hose. We want to welcome everybody to another exciting edition of the Sports Psych MD's podcast. This is episode number nine. How can we help you? In this episode, we're going to talk about some of the cool things that psychiatrists can bring to the sports world. For instance, the therapies and medicines that we often use in our practice that we think will be very useful for athletes. We're going to talk about some of the new mental health and wellness programs that the NFL and NBA are now sponsoring. And we're going to share with you guys a case study where we walk you through how psychiatrists conceptualize a case. All right, it's going to be another exciting episode of the Sports Psych and Bees Mic check. One, two. Let's go. We're the Sports Psych MDs, and my name's Tori. And I'm Armin. Hopefully, you know our names by now, but we'll, we'll keep you going. Yeah. Um, welcome to uh, another episode of the Sports Psych MD podcast. It's great to be here. You look excited. I am, man. I feel good. I feel I feel really good today. It's, look it's, good, feel good. But no, uh, I, I've had a great summer. I actually got to go to Coachella for the first time. Oh, fancy, That dude. was wild. It was a wild experience, Yikes. man. And, yeah, and I actually saw Childish out there, and was, he, he killed it, man. And just, um, but the whole experience, man, it's just like, it really is like magic. You're inspired. I was, I was. Well, bring a little bit of that uh, magic to this podcast today. You know I will. So today we're talking about, what are we talking about? We're, we're talking about what we can do as psychiatrists to help the athlete. What have you done for me lately? Yeah. Right? What, yeah. What can we do? What can we, what can we do to help? Yeah. So today, briefly, here's the agenda. We're going to talk about these new mental health initiatives that a lot of leagues around the country are, are bringing to the table. The NFL and the, the NBA are bringing out some new initiatives. So we'll get into those. Yeah. We're going to talk about specifically what's what's the role for mental health professionals and, and what's the role for psychiatrists right. in professional sports and collegiate sports and all levels of sports and going through, okay, we can do an assessment. We can do a diagnosis. We can give therapy. We can do medications. And then we'll give a little case presentation Boring. at the end as well. <laughs> We'll spice yeah, it up. Yeah, no, we, I mean, we can, we can do all of that for sure. Um, you know, that's what we were trained to do. But I think we can go beyond that, man. You know, I think, I think we can become a part of this movement. I think we can become a part of what I see is a trend that's kind of been flowing now for a few years. You know, we've been talking about it, you know, all these stories that have come out. But, you know, it's this need for a focus, like a dedicated focus, um, structure, a dedicated program, absolutely, around mental health and wellness, and 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 not just any program, not just like kind of typical, you know, just sort of like league policy driven kind of program, but but something that's really like player driven, where they can do and say what they need to with full privacy. And with no concerns that stuff's going to get back to the leadership, or the coaching staff, or out to other players, even you know, <clears throat> you know what I mean, or mm-hmm. and, and definitely not to the press, right? Um, you know, you so know, that confidentiality when it comes absolutely to that. like, but I mean like strict confidentiality, you know, even confidentiality in terms of hey, like if you need to kind of like get away from the team altogether. To, to get taken care of, um, where something's like completely 
outside the scope of you know the yeah. league I think, the I league think, in terms of discretion you know yeah. i think you're right i think in the interim we know that the stigma is still there yeah and a lot of these players don't want to come forward because of the stigma they have privacy concerns. They have confidentiality concerns. Yeah, a lot of the absolutely. leagues are wanting to work with outside therapists and mental health experts to, that players can go to and not feel judged by their teammates or their coaching right. staff or their owners. And I think it's that's a good bridging gap to, to start with programs like that where we can assure confidentiality and, and privacy and HIPAA and all those different things. So I'm glad you brought that up. I'd like to see... Um a stronger effort at a more integrated approach for um, services where not just therapy. I mean, therapy is, I think, should be the cornerstone of a a mental health and wellness program, like a clinical health and wellness program. But I definitely think that there should be direct access to medical treatment. And so, you know, I think it's, it would be essential that a psychiatrist is on staff uh, at a minimum a member of the team, if not part of the sports leadership, you know, kind of driving, you know, various initiatives because of the fact that, you know, medical intervention and of course collaboration with other medical doctors on the team, like the, you know, the orthopedic doctors and, and uh, uh, internal medicine doctors, the trainers, you know, I think it will be, it is important to have the presence of, of a physician for those types of collaborations and then, you know, in addition to kind of basic individual therapy and your medical treatment programs, then you would also, I think, have to have group therapy programs, you know, a variety of different group therapies. I think you'd have to have sub-specialty therapy. Absolutely. Right? We're going to get dig into yeah, those deeper. Yeah, we're going to dig into that. And I think, you, you know, you, you kind of have to have sort of a, a wellness coaching aspect as well, mm-hmm. you know, where... It goes beyond just the symptoms and, and beyond just kind of the present condition, but it kind of is more like future planning and prevention and strategizing, kind of like build our lives and our livelihoods uh, around mental health yeah. and wellness. I love the fact of giving them education on the front end to prevent a lot of different things. So to give them the mental coaching and different aspects and have all these resources right off the gate to prevent a lot of hardships and, and different dysfunctions or disruptions that co- may come into play if, if full-blown mental illness develops. Because like we've talked about before, mental illness is a spectrum, Absolutely. right? Just like physical health is a spectrum. Yeah. It's not just mentally ill and not mentally ill. Right. There's everything in between. And we're here to help everyone. That's right. Anyone That's that right. falls in between that spectrum. Um, so uh, kind of what- spectrum again? Or continuum, <laughs> whatever you great. prefer. What else is there? No, it's yeah, continue. It's, it's not a dichotomy, right? It's, this isn't a black and white world, right? And we'll get into that later with CBT. Anyways, <laughs> you were what well, you were talking about that model of care, and I, I love it. I love that's so like all inclusive model of care: psychiatrists, psychologists, yeah, social workers, trainers, medical yeah, the, doctors, the mental health and wellness, coaching staff, coaching mental coach. Yeah, um, working with the players, players association, working with the leagues, working with the teams. So many different factors. So check this out. The NBA actually, last year, about a year ago, in 2018, they implemented a mental health wellness program that was jointly formed and funded by not only the NBA, but the NBA Players Association. So this is huge. Okay. So this came out in 2018. And the thought behind it was, we're going to allow the players to seek treatment and counseling outside of the framework of their individual teams, if they want it. So 
you know how Harmon just talked about that confidentiality, right. that privacy is key. Yeah. They're focusing in on this. And they appointed Dr. William D. Parham, who's a PhD, and he's a professor that, in counseling actually, I program. I think that might be pronounced Parham. Parham. All right. <laughs> Anyways, he, he's actually a professor in counseling program and interim associate dean of the faculty at LMU. That doesn't really matter. More recently, he was chosen to serve as the first director of mental health and wellness for the NBA Players Association. Ah, okay. Isn't that wow. huge? That's, that's, that's or it's the that's National awesome. Basketball Players Association. I mean, it tells me they're definitely um, got their, their heart in the right place. Absolutely. <laughs> no, that's great. Um, it's interesting. You said that happened a year ago, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, it, and it's crazy. I haven't heard anything about this. And I and I followed the NBA very closely. You yeah. know, I'm you know I, I look at all the various talk shows. You, you know, the, the Bill Simmons pod. Bill Simmons, you Jaylen got Jacoby, uh, Skip and Shannon. Oof. Yeah, Undisputed, First Take, The Ringer. And I love them all. And I, and it's crazy. They're, they're, so on those on those um, those shows, they're they're definitely starting to talk a lot more about mental health, as you may suspect. Um, and they are all over the NBA journalism landscape, and they—I haven't heard anything about that. So this news to me, but that's great. That's I mean, fascinating. And the thing is, he, in this article that we found, he has some of the same ambitions as you just—what you just laid out with regards to implementing a, a structured program within the NBA. And what he wants to do, what Dr. Parham wants to do, is he wants to establish a network of licensed mental health professionals. What he wants to do is mostly psychologists, but also some psychiatrists and social workers, all vetted, all certified, like Armin and I, in each city's where the NBA has a franchise. He also wants to establish a 24-hour hotline that players can access for mental health issues, and he wants to do an educational program or campaign targeting players on mental health issues and resources that are available to them. And then his last and fourth and final goal is to build relationships with the players. You really just read that word for word. Exactly. (laughs) But that's kind of what you like. That's essentially what we're saying to a certain extent. Yeah. Like he in here, he wants to have some sort of educational campaign. That's essentially like prevention. In real life, he's actually is not that dry. He actually he's very eloquent. Is Um, he? He is because uh, no, I, I actually read some of his stuff. Um, I made it seem like I didn't know, Ooh. but I really, d- I knew, I knew that this guy existed. Um, but I just found out today because you brought it to my attention. So there was a, uh, an article in slam magazine online, um, where they interviewed him in May of this year, just a couple months ago. And he broke it down. I was very impressed actually by, by what he had to say in terms of his vision. He seems to definitely have his finger on the pulse in terms of, what's happening with the interest in mental health among athletes. And he seems to get the fact that players really need this and that teams would benefit from it, mm-hmm. you know, and, is, and he says all this stuff very eloquently. I am very, very interested in and eager to, to see how they're, what they're going to roll out. Are you going to read us a quote of his? So here's a quote by Dr. Parham. If we tear an MCL or an ACL, or if we go down with a physical injury, People are very sympathetic toward it. But if you go through something mentally or emotionally, in the past, historically, there have been some very negative stigmas associated with that. I think we've gotten past that. I think we're more aware about our mental and emotional health nowadays. And then he talks also about stigma. I love this guy. 
He's, yeah, on our, he's one of our. He talks he, he's about one of us, dude. The African American experience and how there's, you know, obviously a lot of stigma around like marijuana use. We're pretty aware, I think, of the problem it's had for certain NFL players. Oh yeah, uh, we're gonna get into that for sure. But that. I want to get Dr. Parham on this podcast. He's he's one of us. He's at the tip of the spear, helping out the NBA right now. And the he NBA is. sounds like they're they're the front runners. But let me talk about the NFL. And NFL just this past year in May of 2019 announced a new initiative by the NFL and the NFLPA that will require every team to employ a mental health professional to work within its building. Nice. So a little bit different than the NBA because they want it within the building. Right. But here's what they want to do. They want to have a comprehensive mental health and wellness committee. Hmm. It's funny how the mental health and wellness, they go together like two pieces they of really pot. They really do. <laughs> and then the second aspect of this is a joint pain management committee investigating alternative therapies to like opiates or pain management. So these they have these two kind of linked together, which yeah. I think makes a lot of sense. And Dr. Alan Sills, he's the NFL's chief medical advisor on point running this thing. He says currently the league has programs in place for dealing with mental health issues and they have league approved clinicians players can see outside of team facilities. But what they want is team specific mental health professionals to be in charge of coordinating treatment programs specific to each individual player's needs. Players will still be able to seek treatment for their conditions outside the facility, but we'll have a point person on hand to help them coordinate that and to help educate and diagnose if needed. So that's kind of like a wellness coach. Exactly. Yeah. So I, I'm not sure it doesn't say here who this point person is, whether it's a psychiatrist, psychologist, social worker, um, what type of individual it is, but it's a mental well, health professional. It has to yeah. be. And I think they, they use that term because you know, it's a very loose term, professional, uh, for a reason. I, a coordinator position definitely wouldn't be you know something for a psychologist or a psychiatrist, but I, I could imagine someone like a like a coach, you know, like a wellness coach mm-hmm. that could kind of coordinate that level of they care. They did mention help educate and diagnose. So and yeah, that's exactly what they do. That's a little bit of a higher level. Well, no, the diagnosis, but I think what they're trying to this actually kind of gets into like other other stuff. But I think one of the biggest issues that even just society in general is trying to t- trying to tackle right now is this whole issue of access, right? Yeah. And access to care because mental health services are are expensive, and there really aren't a lot of psychiatrists or there's a shortage uh, psychologists in the world in Except general, for in Manhattan or well in the United States. Um, but there's a lot of need, uh, and there are, are are also a lot of communities that you know have very few, if any, high level mental health experts. So telemedicine, yeah. telepsychiatry, mm-hmm. teletherapy. Which means, um, talk space, these different as an aside, we can literally have our computers and be broadcasted to yeah. some small town in California, yeah. 300 miles away, exactly. and be their psychiatrist because they don't have psychiatrists. And they'll pay us a lot of money to do that because yeah. there's a need, there's an urgent need. Yeah, and, and the kind of the, you know, one of the cool things, neat things, whatever, about uh, mental health care is that you can do a lot with a little, can make a big difference for someone without having to have them right there in front of you and examining them physically and stuff like mm-hmm. that. So the virtual space is a great way to, you know, still get mental health treatment. And so, you know, there's this trend, I think, for, again, empowering people m- maybe with less intensive educational requirements, but who are still, you know, well-trained in mental health and wellness concepts and mm-hmm. themes. And they're just good people that just really want to help other people. 
you know. Yeah, and, they're on the front lines. They're the and ones they're on the front lines, and they can come back to the therapists and doctors, you know, and psychiatrists, and and sort of deliver the message, right? And they can kind of collaborate between the two because they can kind of they're not doctors or psychologists or therapists, so they can kind of like still get on the the same level uh, of communication and understanding and connectedness with the patient. They're, um, they're the point person. They're, exactly. So they play a pivotal role. They're, yeah. the, they're oftentimes the first person um, that's ever talked with someone about mental illness or inquired about it. Yeah. Um, they get the first shot. So it, without them, without that, that role, then um, mental health care would suffer. So I would just want to applaud the NBA and the NFL. They're, they're, the, ball's, the ball's moving yeah, right now. It's very progressive. The ball's moving. And then yeah. I'm hoping to actually see these models of care play out and see them uh, working and working well. And I think Armin and I were talking before we started this podcast, you had your own kind of model of care that pretty much looks just like these kind of separate from that. Yeah. So I think they're doing a good job. Yeah, no, absolutely, man. No, they're, they're, they're right there. And I, you know, and I think just like with anything, you know, it's a new initiative, you know, it's going to take some time to develop and evolve. You know, we're just really, on the frontier. Yeah, there's no there's no coincidence that both the NBA and the NFL within the past year have both came out publicly with these new mental health and wellness initiatives. So that's awesome. We're we're here and that's that's why the Sports Psych MD's podcast that's right. is here. You know, let's let's get this conversation going. So let's jump into like what specifically what's our role as mental health professionals as psychiatrists. Great question. We can get in there. We're, we're eventually when someone when when an athlete you know, honestly, sits in we've front been of doing us this for what this is our six seven. Yeah, I've, I've, I've been I've been asking myself that question this entire time. Like, what are we doing here? Like, what is our role? To talk. Why? 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 Yeah. Why does an athlete? Like, if I'm an athlete uh, and I'm you know listening to this podcast, why do I care? Like, I mean, yeah, it's interesting stuff. I think it's interesting. Hopefully they think it's interesting. But it's like, what what do you guys really do? What do you do? So after, like, we, we talked about the model of care, right, with all these different moving pieces. I honestly don't think half these guys even know the difference between a psychologist but, and a psychiatrist. Well, let's, let's, let's let them know. Let's when, talk. When we, we have an athlete, a client sitting in front of us, this is what we do. We do a very intensive assessment, interview, evaluation. We get to know the patient. We get to know the individual. We get to know their history, dating back to childhood dating back to even in utero exposures how was their mom's pregnancy with them we get to know their family history how were their parents like did they have any mental illnesses did they struggle with any substance use we we really dig deep to get to know what the the past issues are and what the current issues are absolutely the history of present illness is what we call it the hpi yeah. yeah that only doctors will know that's stupid anyways we get to know what they're struggling with and then we also get to get a sense of what their goals are what their weaknesses are what their strengths are what their stressors are um, what their abilities are, and we go from there. That's our assessment. That's what we start with, right? And and a lot of times, I don't want to get in too many gritty details. We do like no, to no, no, no. we do like no, to no, make no, sure make all it, make it plain. All our athletes have seen a medical doctor recently and have recent labs because there are medical illness, like we've talked about, touched on in the first episode, that can kind of mimic and look like depression, and look like anxiety. Right. Hyperthyroid, like a high thyroid hormones can look like anxiety. Mimic, Low yeah. thyroid that's can right. look like depression. So we gotta, we gotta rule out the medical illnesses, right? So that's what we do, um, and that's, that's kind of how we start. So where do yeah. we go, where do just, we go from no, there? We just get the, yeah, that's We're just, just getting the ball rolling. Exactly. 
So then we, we get to know the patient. Maybe we make a diagnosis. We do a formulation. Right. We don't take diagnosis lightly, though. We don't want to no. just throw, throw out no. PTSD. No, no, no. You don't want to do that. The first time we meet someone, right? You don't want to do that. You got to take time to get to know them yeah. on more than one occasion. That's right. Oftentimes. It's a very thoughtful and careful process. Absolutely. And it's, and, and, you know, and it, 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 a process. Exactly. It's a process. You know, and, and over time, curating the treatment plan. You know, and you're you're making adjustments. You know, in let's get into that treatment plan. Yeah, let's let's do that. Let's go back. Yeah, let's go back. Well, before the treatment plan, going along with the diagnosis, we we educate them on their issues. A lot of times, it, that's essential. We can give them the words that they may not have been able to put to their feelings or to what's going on, and that sometimes is a, a relief to know that I'm not crazy. I'm just dealing with depression. Or I'm just yeah. dealing with panic disorder. Yeah, I'm dealing with something that can get better with treatment. Yeah. I'm dealing with something that's been researched. I was going to say thousands of years, but hasn't been researched. Really. That's been researched for... <laughs> well, actually, kind of. They're, they're, I'm dealing know? with something that's been I researched mean, for decades, right? So something like panic disorder has yeah. so many different uh, scientific research articles that have proven that certain well, medications like help. Evidence-based. Evidence-based. That's what yes, we're they'd love for. to throw that out there. So like, that means that there's clinical studies yeah. determining not only efficacy, but safety of the medications. Yeah, efficacy is kind of like effectiveness, not exactly effectiveness. It's like a cute, it's like a sexy way of saying effectiveness. Yeah. It's like if you put effectiveness and sexy together, you get efficacy. That's right. Kind exactly. of. Exactly. Perfect. You nice. nailed it. Got it. So what's, what's usually the first <laughs> line of treatment for, for someone? After we do the education piece. First line. Well, that's a, that's a loaded question, actually. Um, I would say that really depends on a number of factors, but primarily the severity of the condition, you know, the symptom burden, um, the degree to which it's affecting their performance. Speak on that a little bit. What would you do with someone with a more, a higher symptom burden, like more severe symptoms? Yeah, I think... And even the studies support this, and they've they've you know demonstrated this for years. But yeah, I think once you get to the moderate range of symptom level, I think that meaning then, like you're starting to get kind of moderate dysfunction. Well, day to day life. Yeah. So moderate to me means it's like daily symptoms. You know what I mean? Like every day you're dealing with it. It's not a day go. Now it may not be like you're down and out and can't perform. You know, but it's like it's something that's not just here and there, mm-hmm. but or intermittent. It's like every day you're dealing with this, and it's getting to a point where it's like you 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 know you gotta really you have to see somebody. It's know? causing disruption. It's disruptive. It's it's disruptive exactly. So for for me at that point, I have to see a doctor, uh, like a medical doctor. You know, I have to see a psychiatrist. A lot of people end up, you know, with their primary care provider at first. Um, a lot of small towns don't have psychiatrists. They don't so have psychiatrists. The primary care doctors will. And, and so the primary care point. doctor will kind of be the one to initially recognize kind of what's going on. And, and often you know, and sometimes treat in these small towns. And it, well, if, yeah, if there's no psychiatrist available, treat to the best of your ability. I would try to do a phone consultation, you know, if you can with maybe a psychiatrist and you, that you know or maybe in the neighboring community. But, you know, I think that if you do have access to a psychiatrist, an astute primary care provider is going to refer out. Um, and so once they're there, you know, I think you have to, as a, the doctor, you have to decide whether to, you know, go with medication 
or to send back and say, you know, we can do this with just therapy. Um, so you're saying as a psychiatrist, you can do both medications and therapy or one or the other? Absolutely both. Um, but it's, it's, it's not quite that simple. Um, I think it's, you know, when you're a medical doctor, there's uh, a lot of different things you have to consider in, in the equation because, as you mentioned earlier, right, the, the symptoms may be a result of a medical condition mm-hmm. or they could be the result of drug use um, or a variety of different things. And, and so the first thing to do actually is to rule out those other causes, you know, before you determine, you know, sort of like it through a distillation process before you determine, okay, this is psychiatric. Mm-hmm. Um, um, so you go through the whole analysis, you do a differential diagnosis, right? Which means you're gonna, you know, do a formulation of different ideas, different possibilities. And, and in the end, you know, after you've gathered all the data, done your analysis, you know, you make a, a, a decision, we'll do a diagnostic formulation, which includes any potential, obviously, psychiatric symptoms, um, medical or physical uh, illnesses that may be contributing, uh, any so- social and psych- we call it psychosocial. So it's sort of like any external or environmental mm-hmm. influences, like for example, a divorce, or we talked about before recovering from an in- injury and just kind of having yeah. problems adjusting and rehab and all that. So I really those, want to focus in on that formulation because I think that as yeah, psychiatrists, that's where we, trifecta, we can really come into play trifecta, here right. where we, as um, with our medical background can really look at like the biological predispositions, the genetic predispositions, um, what was going on in the womb and the delivery and then how the childhood affects the genetics and interplays with it and the susceptibility due to the family history. And then you maybe include drugs and trauma and neglect and it all mixes together Mm -hmm. and you have mental illness and you have stressors that can worsen the mental illness and you have different supportive factors that can help things. So you have to take a look at this giant soup and put it all together. That's right. And the main goal is just to come up with an appropriate treatment plan. Can right. you conceptualize the case? And in doing so, you can put a name to it. You can put the, the, the athlete, the client at ease. And then here's the treatment plan. Yeah. And, and it's and it's an all-encompassing comprehensive plan, right? Um, if you need medicine, we can do medicine. You know, I don't have to send you out somewhere. If you need therapy, we can do therapy That's as well. That's what I'm saying. So as um, a psychiatrist, yeah. you can do meds, Therapy, well, we can do the analysis necessary to know which is required. Yeah. Um, I, you know, um, oftentimes with with uh, psychiatrists, um, solid therapy requires it's a lot of time. You know, it's a weekly commitment, one hour a week, if not, you know, I mean, bi-weekly at a minimum. And that's a lot of time. You know, psychiatrists don't always have the time, you know, to commit to that. In which case, you know, we may refer to a psychologist or, you know, social worker, you know, therapist. And that's usually because on average, psychiatrists cost a little bit more and they want the psychiatrist to practice at the top of their license, right? That's right. You want to prioritize the time. It's all about time. If we had more time, of course, mm -hmm. you know. Psychologists can do diagnosis, evaluation, therapy but they can't do medications. So that's or, where yeah, or any of the, the, medical val- interventions. the valuability can yeah. come in as a psychiatrist. Because there's a lot of medical inter- interventions for psychiatry out there now, like TMS, ECT, ECT um, deep brain stimulation, the deep, yeah, DBS. TMS is transcranial mag- magnetic stim. So it's, you know, it's, it's, it's brainwave 
activation. Um, you know that, but it's you know the, the studies oh, have FDA approved. You know the studies have uh, have demonstrated it can well, it can help with depression. ECT is yeah. the uh, second most effective treatment we have That's even right. to this date even for stuff like you know bipolar disorders schizophrenia yeah. i've seen it work for electroconvulsive therapy yeah so anyway man uh getting back on track here we could get away with this stuff therapy but therapy you want to jump in so we have a lot of different types of therapies out there um i think we should definitely educate the, the you know the public on, on what's there um therapies i think kind of big picture they sort of are almost like a two primary camps. One form of therapy is what we call dynamic therapy. Oh, yeah. Um, and the other kind of realm of therapy is the behavior therapy um, and dominated, predominated by cognitive behavior therapy, yeah. CBT. Those are the two bigs. And then like, there's sort of like, I guess, various branches from there. Kind of, yeah, processes. But most kinds of one. therapy kind of branch off from there. So yep. starting with cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT, probably the most popular. It's manualized. So you can go through this packet. Um, but there's so many different things that like sports psychologists and mental coaches, they'll grab from CBT. So a lot of this may sound familiar. It starts out with this cognitive triangle or triad. Essentially, it's, it allows you to be more aware of how your thoughts, emotions, and actions are all interconnected and how each one can affect the other, especially how thoughts and behaviors can affect our emotions, all right? And then the next goal in that is working on identifying harmful thoughts or, or kind of negative ways of thinking, or we, can, we also call them cognitive distortions or thinking traps and identifying these things. So I wanna just go through a list of these because some of these I found fascinating. I use them a lot with my Allison patients. So all or nothing thinking or black and white thinking. This is kind of my favorite this day and age, especially with like the political landscape. Essentially, this is when you think there's no middle ground. So an example of this, an easy one would be you get like an A minus on a test instead of acing it. So that makes you a failure hmm. because you can get a perfect. It's all or nothing. Kind of sports, I think, is unique in this because it sets you up to think this way because of wins and losses, right? It is kind of black and white. Sports are kind of like that. They're, it's built into the, to the competition. There's literally no middle ground. But in reality... You have to be able to learn to live in the gray. You can't just live in black and whites. That's right. You have to be on the middle. So that's that's huge. Overgeneralization is another big one. It, that's essentially when you have a failed performance maybe in one aspect of your life. Mm -hmm. Then you, all of a sudden you think you're a total failure in everything. So this and for athletes it would be, I didn't make it to the pros, so I'm not only a failed athlete, I'm a failed person. Or I didn't win a ring, so I'm not an elite player. I think that's a common one yeah. nowadays. Yep. Um, some would agree with that, some wouldn't, but that's an overgeneralization and it's, it's the cousin to catastrophizing or blowing things out of proportion. Um, I think goalies probably in the hockey are good at this. You say a goalie allows an early goal. He, then he perseverates on it. He gets in his head. Oh, I should have made that save. Next thing you know, two more goals get by him and, and things have been yeah. blown up. Yep. And then another common one, last one I want to talk about is discounting the positive. How many, t how many people have a difficulty taking a compliment? Someone like says, oh man, really good job today. Oh, I was just lucky. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, just as simple as that. We all do these, have these cognitive distortions, but this can lead to negative emotional states. So the, the end goal is to just develop new ways of thinking and behaving to essentially decrease distress. So you're decreasing distress from anxiety, depression, psychosis. You can do CBT psychosis 
and allow someone to learn to live with their voices that they hear in their head and they just don't bother them anymore. So CBT is very Not like functional. psychotic voices. Not mm-hmm. those voices. No? Yeah. That's CBT psychosis. Oh, wow. Yeah. You, you talk, you're talking about CBT psychosis. Yeah, no, that's... Yeah. I, yeah, no, you're right. I, that's deep. Did they, do, you, do you guys learn about that at Harbor? Oh, I've, I've done Dude, it. Dude, that's amazing. Yeah, it's that fun. stuff... Honestly, man, There's some for people years, that, no, for years, they didn't think there was any, you know, there were therapies that could truly, truly help people with schizophrenia, but that's changing with this you know, yeah. CBT psychosis. You got to get in there early. You yeah, got to get in there early. Yeah, exactly. Um, so that's CBT. I wanted my f- Armin. He's a professional in ACT. We're going to throw these acronyms at you. <laughs> tell us about a, Listen to this guy. acceptance and commitment therapy. Yes, yes, yes. Thank you. Captain very Hose. Much. Yes, Tori. I really appreciate it. ACT. I, I learned about. I learned about ACT when you learned about ACT. We learned about it together. Doctor Delu. Um, Doctor Charlie Delu. Circa two thousand. At the, at the yeah, seventeen. The Veterans Hospital in Sepulveda. Um, well, the the mental health clinic there. North Hills. North Hills. Um, so what I what I remember taking away from that was. Uh, That's where Grey's Anatomy was filmed. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. I remember when I, le- I learned that, like, I guess, orientation. Yeah, they would like, shoot oh, this, it. Like, this program's going to be so cool. <laughs> We'd be rotating through and the then I, And I was like, we're going to be getting clinics. to see, like, you know, uh, McDreamy. actors and McDreamy yeah. and McSteamy and all these people running around. But unfortunately, yeah, they, they asked, never showed up. They asked me to uh, kind of have this pretty serious role. I, I declined it, though. It turns out that they had already, um, I think, gone off the air, right? Yeah. That's how we started. No. Entering. No, they, they really? were filming, dude. I saw them there. That special bridge. You saw them? Yeah, they filmed. I would see them all the time. No, I wouldn't actually see them that much, but they were still filming. Wow. Guaranteed. That's crazy. Okay. Anyway, so now what he talked about was that there's this therapy that I think is probably really good for folks that kind of have a problem with holding on to stuff, you know, like... Um, people who tend to hold on to thoughts they can't let things go like we call it ruminations oh yeah that's so common or yeah or people that you know kind of you know can't get let go of certain you know emotions they get it really attached to certain emotions you're talking like people that continue to make the same mistakes over and over again anxiety is often it's a kind of a force kind of weighing on us but this therapy is intended at least to help us learn how to let go and and to let go by accepting. Oh. At the end, the patients learn, people learn, the, the players, the athletes, they learn rather than trying to avoid it or pretend like it's not there, mm-hmm. right? You accept that feeling and you move on in spite of that feeling. Yeah. Move forward. I love it. Move forward. So you essentially, you you have this anxiety, you have this part of you that's stuck. And instead of kind of isolating it and putting it off to the side, because if you do that, it's going to grow its own personality and and your anxiety is going to be stronger than it ever was. You have to incorporate into your sense of self and to who you are. And then that's when you can move forward. That's right. And, And essentially, no, you still have anxiety, but your functioning is much better and much improved. Yeah, I mean, because it's all about performance. Yes. And it's all about trying to remove those barriers to performance. Ooh, yeah. All right, so last detailed therapy we want to talk about is DBT, 
dialectical behavioral therapy. Oh, yeah. So this one has four components. Mindfulness, which is the ability to accept and be present in the current moment. Sound yeah, familiar? It's about a, achieving a higher state of consciousness. Anyone that's had like a mental coach or a sports psychologist yeah. um, or a sports therapist has talked about being in the present moment and that's having right. that mindfulness when you're on the basketball court or the football field. Yep. So that's a tenant. Um, distress tolerance is the next. So this is uh, obviously what it sounds like, increased ability to tolerate negative emotions rather than escaping them. That's important. So a lot of times someone with anxiety will avoid the triggers to their anxiety. So let's talk about public speaking. Mm. You know what? how you get good at public speaking? Public speaking, practice. That's right. When you do something yeah. over and over practice again. Practice makes perfect. The anxiety goes away, it's called extinction. That's one of the therapies for, you can do exposure therapy and all these different things for anxiety. But So that leads us into being able to tolerate negative emotions and be in that moment, mindfulness, distress tolerance. That leads us into emotional regulation, which is the third tenet. So essentially we'll just give you strategies to manage and change intense emotions that are causing problems. And then that includes like simple relaxation techniques, grounding, deep breathing. Have you ever seen like a baseball pitcher get on the mound and maybe, or someone going up to bat, they have their little routine. Maybe they take a oh, nice yeah. deep breath. They all, yeah, they all have their routines. You know, yeah. they're, they're getting their emotions in order. They're getting mindful right then and there. And then the last and for, fourth and final tenet of DBT is interpersonal effectiveness. So this is important. This is improving ability to communicate with others. Oh, that sounds like teamwork, improving teamwork, teamwork improving camaraderie. That's right. So this is towards maintaining self-respect while also respecting others in order to strengthen relationships. Mm -hmm. Now, DBT gets a bad, sometimes gets a bad rap or a stigma because it's used to treat borderline personality disorder a lot of times. These are individuals that lack a sense of self, often do have black and white thinking, are often very impulsive, vary from but extreme it, highs and absolutely. lows. A lot of people think it's bipolar disorder but yeah and that's more to be to be fair that's the more severe form of borderline i mean like we mentioned earlier the spectrum it yeah. always goes back to the spectrum i mean there are people that kind of just have more like traits mm -hmm. they're not full-blown personality personality disordered but in fact they do kind of exhibit some features but those features can often be very distressing in that it may you know, it may not be disabling, you know, it may not prevent them from doing things, but it, it may just kind of be dis disruptive, you know, so they're just, you're not quite as stable in relationships as you should be. You're not quite as stable in terms of your ability to maintain, you know, professional relationships and so forth. And, you know, and that and that holds you back. What that comes from now, the studies have shown. I don't want to put a negative connotation or stigma towards borderline personality disorder because it does get that negative connotation. A lot of individuals who have this disorder, maybe some cluster traits of this, exhibit a brain that is hypersensitive to emotion, mm -hmm. and then they're born into an environment which doesn't necessarily fit their needs. It, it isn't a good or bad environment. We're, we're not working in black and whites here, but it's, a, it's an environment that just isn't necessarily a good match. So that accentuates that emotional ability. Right. And that, that results ability. in highs yeah. and lows, which leads to all the disruptions you talked about. Right. Disruptions within relationships, disruptions within your sense of self, disruptions within your job. And, and, and it, it, exactly, that's what's so important about dynamic therapy. Right, we haven't talked about that yet. We haven't touched on Let's it. Let's go into it. Get into but it. But you just you just 
unearthed it. It was it was awesome. You unrooted. Well, that's what psychodynamic it was like is right unrooted. there. It was amazing. You're like, yeah. This is a psychodynamic it inception all right here. It starts from day one. Now, whether you consider it to be conception or when you start breathing oxygen with your own lungs, but whenever that day was for you, we believe, you know, those who, who practice dynamic therapy and believe in dynamic therapy, that the mind and, and therefore the, and the personality is being shaped or curated, uh, as we said earlier, but, you know, from that point forward and everything uh, in terms of environmental influences from that day forward can have an impact mm-hmm. and, you know, on what's ultimately expressed. And like sort of an architect or an engineer, a psychiatrist, actually any mental health professional who practices dynamic therapy or psychodynamic therapy is ultimately performing an analysis that seeks to go kind of go back in time and kind of like lay out the matrix. Oh, I like that. You know, the matrix that is this individual's, this client or patient's developmental history. Okay. Eventually, right, once you lay everything out, right, and everything is is now within our awareness, which kind of is our own form of mindfulness. But once everything is laid out, we have the blueprint. Uh, you're bringing uh, the unconscious <laughs> conscious, essentially. Yeah. Um, all right, let's get to the money maker. Let's get to what psychiatrists, MDs do for, for a living here is, is medication. So medication, like we said, evidence-based medications, I don't want to get into too many details. Let's get right to it. We're always cognizant of the side effects when it comes to prescribing to anyone, yeah. but especially athletes. We don't want to affect performance. Yeah. So let's get into probably the most popular class, SSRIs, serotonin reuptake inhibitors. Yeah. Prime example would be Prozac, Olaf, those are the trade names. Anyways, what do these treat? So we can help people who are depressed, anxious, maybe have trauma-related symptoms, panic symptoms, anger management. But what, what do SSRIs really do? Mm-hmm. What, what we're actually targeting with the serotonin reuptake inhibitors, the serotonin receptors. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to get into that detail. We can lock and key. Bomb. It's, it's yeah. simple. Ooh. Just lock and key. All right. Lock and key. Lock but and what key. are we targeting? We treat depression, we t- treat anxiety, but what specifically do we help with? So it's not, they're not happy pills, but these medications can help with what we call the neurovegetative symptoms. It just so happens that helping with these symptoms will lead to, I think, better performance. So SSRIs can help you with energy, sleep, focus, concentration, motivation, and appetite. And those are all symptoms of depression. It can also help you with these ruminations that Armin was talking about, feelings of panic, sweatiness, shakiness, um, feeling in, overall inhibited. These are the symptoms that, that these medications really help with, and therefore it's going to lift your mood. It's going to lift your anxiety. What's your luck with SSRIs? Oh, I'm very successful, yeah. I mean, the, it's really about, uh, it, it's a style thing. With mental health treatment, it, it's really all about sustainability, meaning like, being able to to stay the course, like maintain the, the treatment, because these are all long-term they take uh, time. conditions that take time. You know, it's not going to be like one, two, three weeks of treatment. You know, we're talking about usually at least six to 12 months, if not, you know, several years of treatment. And even after we, we come off medicine, you know, we still like to continue with therapy 
different things like that. So I think when you consider consider the sustainability principle, you always want to start off on the lowest effective dose. And that decreases side effects, you know. Which is pivotal. You also really want to be about expectations management. You know, I always let uh, my clients and patients know up front that this is a a marathon. This is a long-term engagement, a commitment. And so there should be no expectations of immediate type of change. I think there can be immediate benefits. There could be initial relief. Initial relief within the first couple of days, you know, you'll be sleeping better. Your your appetite will improve. Your energy will pick up. You will perform better from the beginning. But in terms of like a fully comprehensive, total symptom-free type of, of, of So process. essentially you're saying like if you remove the treatment after like a couple of weeks, you're just going to revert back to the symptoms you had before. But if you wait maybe a year or two and then remove the treatment, you may it may be curative, the treatment. Oh, yeah, under, yeah, undergone. exactly, exactly. You have to, yeah, you have to stay the course. And then, the, and then once you get to a point of symptom-free, we call it remission, and that may take a few months. But once we get there, and then we if we can stay there a little while, then we can begin to to, ta- to to taper off or you know step back on the dosages of the medicine, and you know develop a strategy of kind of how to come off the medicine yeah. at some point. And while you're doing that, you're you're honing in those therapy skills. Yeah. And you're learning and you're growing as a person. So when you go off the medication, you've kind of adapt and you're almost a new person. Not only because of the medication, but because of the therapy that you've been receiving. That's right. Yeah. I like the combo. It, it's it's always best in combination, you know. Like we said, the studies support that, particularly for you know moderate and above symptoms. Like I said, it's just about you know setting the expectations and setting this the stage for what the process looks like up front. And really, it's also about the follow up, right? So you want a certain type of frequency. You know, obviously for a therapy case, it's weekly or biweekly. If you're only doing medicine. Um, it shouldn't be like every three, four months, you know, that's way, it's, that's, that's ridiculous. It should be probably monthly. Probably want to start out even more starting out. Yeah. Starting out. Exactly. From the initial part, you may even want daily check-ins if if necessary. But yeah, I, I, I like SSRIs because of the sustainability, you know, they're well tolerated and you know, it's, it's interesting, man, part of the, the, the stigma of mental health or excuse me, mental illness. And, you know, is this sort of what I think is a very archaic way of thinking that I've seen across society. I mean, even including, even including other fields of medicine, okay. That, uh, psychiatric medicines could be very harmful and, and, you know, or super toxic and, you know, people are going to be walking around like zombies. I, I still hear this stuff. And, Listen, Every we day. get it. I, I, no, I totally get it. Psychiatry has this legacy. There's this museum downtown in near downtown LA. Don't give it props. Yeah, I'm not even going to say the name. No, don't give it any shine. It does, I think, play a role in promoting and propagating these these myths that I think were largely formulated, you know, back in the you know, kind of early stages of psychiatry, 40s, 50s, 60s. During a time we were still trying to figure it out and where some of the medicines, you know, did cause like people to, we call hypersalivate drooling. or drooling and, or, you know, does make people kind of feel stiff. Very rarely have the medicines ever been actually life threatening, but <clears throat> people look weird, you know, or they have like these problems where they're, 
kind of mouths mouths twitch, their lips kind of quiver. It's hard of dyskinesia. Right. And it, so people don't look great. Well, people on don't the like old medicines. They don't like ECT either. And they we weren't. <laughs> they were never really super life threatening. I mean, there's a couple of conditions that can, if you if you go into super high doses, that can be harmful. But nowadays, we never get to those doses. So what we're saying is, like nowadays, actually, we have this whole new generation of of psychiatric medicines for mental health treatment. You know, for depression, anxiety. You know, even psychosis and so forth, bipolar even addiction that are very, very well studied with these like multi-million dollar, if not billion dollar clinical trials, FDA approved, and they're making people better. Safe and, and effective. And by the droves and they're safe. Like they're not even throwing you off your, your game in terms of making you sleepy anymore. I mean like Wellbutrin is one medicine that, you know, actually it, it's something you take in the morning, gives you a boost, you know, gives you, you know, put some pep in your step to get your day started. Bupropion. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. That's a generic name. Um, so we got some cool names for but, these men. <laughs> but no, I mean, you know, it's it's really about, to me, when you're talking about medical treatment and its true value, it's about restoring function. I think therapy is great for, you know, sort of like over a period of time, once you start to integrate, you know, these different concepts, I think it can be very uh, helpful in terms of you know lifestyle change and and so forth and just personal growth. But I, I think in terms of just like in an immediate, not immediate, I shouldn't say immediate, but in kind of a in short order, restoring function, kind of getting you back um, while during the the process of therapy is playing out. It's all about a good trial of medicine. So that's SSRIs. We're also going to talk uh, briefly about stimulants. That's another one. We prescribe the Adderalls, the Ritalins, the methylphenidates, the Concertas, the Vyvanses. Extremely effective medications to treat ADHD, especially in young kids. Yeah, chronic fatigue. Yeah, and here's the symptoms that it helps with in someone with ADHD. It can help you focus, concentrate, relax, and lock in. Yep. So wouldn't that be helpful if you had that if, and you want, you're a gymnast or you're a professional football player to have, if you have ADHD or you can't focus on the plays, you can't even concentrate on going over your steps or doing your routine right or, or listening to the coaches on the sidelines because you have ADHD and you're hyperactive and maybe you're, you're impulsive and you're, you're making a lot of mistakes or you're doing risky behaviors. Um, you're just not quite fitting in. People are annoyed with you. Wouldn't you like to take something? That, ha- that works right away when you take it yes, to help you right. yeah. sit still, focus, concentrate, relax, and lock in. Why not? That's stimulants. So, Yeah, didn't Simone Biles have to have Yeah, to we talked about, about the about no- inaugural episode. Yeah. 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 She, she came out and she talked all about it, and she's, she's helping decrease the stigma. She is. Yeah. Right on, Simone. We re- we're repping her on our, our Instagram page. Check it out. Yeah, yep. definitely. At... Sports like MDs, no doubt. That's like all our handles. So I don't. We don't want to talk too much in detail, but we use stuff like mood, like for the bipolar, schizophrenia, uh, impulse control disorders, mood stabilizers, antipsychotics mood can be used. We, we kind of hold off on these a little bit. These are well, the big a little guns, bit. No, just a little bit, just a little bit, because mood stabilizers. I think actually they they actually we can we can talk about those. Yeah. Because here's what mood stabilizers can do. They can boost the performance of the antidepressant. Oh, yeah. You know? So they work, can work um, synergistically together. They're synergistic, yeah. So many different options. 
Uh, mood stabilizers can actually be really good for patients who've had traumatic brain injuries or really tough con- concussions so, yeah. when they're more definitely have a low frustration tolerance, maybe a little bit more impulsive and are prone to having the emotional yeah. lay and mood lability. The, the key to them is just to keep them at, you know, very low doses mm-hmm. and, and just kind of, like I said, just a little touch, just a little like, sprinkle. Honestly, we're given medications and we're following up. We know the exact doses we're giving. Yeah. They have a reg- regimen or, or a dosing schedule where they take it every day at a certain time. And guess what? They come into our offices every month. We do telephone visits or they right. come in to the, uh, they're not just given yeah. a bunch of drugs and say, hey, this is going to no, no, fix no. you. Here's the thing. So what I've learned is so important. And, it, you know, when you're treating professionals, which like I do in my private practice. Ooh, and I, and, shout and, and out. I, Latitude Mental Health. That's right. Um, navigation to wellness, baby. <laughs> <laughs> but no, seriously, what I do with my patients there is I really make sure that the treatment plan fits with their lifestyle, right? And that's so important because when you're busy, it's something that you want to just be able to just kind of do conveniently. And so I, I make sure that to, to really limit it to just a few, as few as possible. One, at most two. I very, very rarely go above two medicines. You try and if to I avoid do, polypharmacy? If I do go above two, it's only the third one is, is more something like just to take kind of for like Sleeper. as needed, like for... Sleep. Yeah, insomnia. Yeah, you know, like exactly. Insomnia, just something like that. But so, first of all, you know, you try to you know reduce the number of tablets. You know, so uh, and then and then you say like maybe take this these two tablets at bedtime. You know, and then make sure they they schedule it. Um, or you know, if it's something that I think is more designed to kind of give them a little edge, a little boost. You know, say you know take these two. You know, with breakfast in the morning or something like that. And that's it, you know, like, just don't even think about Bada it. Boom, bam. Athletes, especially, they like regimen, they like mm-hmm. ritual, you know, they like, you know, things like consistency. So, you know, I think it's a natural fit, you yeah. know, just kind of, hey, take this, you know, same time and then boom, just like with their supplements. Yeah. Right? What's critical is you educate them. You educate them on what they should expect right. or what could happen, side effects. Coaching. And if they have a side effect or an unsuspected coach effect. Too. Doctors yeah. coach too. If they have a side effect or an unsuspected effect, they give you a call and let you know and you'll go over it. All right. So that's just as important as prescribing it is talking to the patient about it. Educating. I wanted to go on a quick tangent. You mentioned um, having to be aware about other factors and prescribing a medication with the specific patient in mind and what they're dealing with in their life. And that made me think of like prescribing Lexapro to like a a 21-year-old male. Would you want to do that necessarily? Because one of the <laughs> the big side effects of Lexapro is sexual dysfunction. Mm-hmm. Can't get a boner. Can't get an erection. That's right. Can't ejaculate. Well, so maybe you yeah, have to think twice to prescribing can, that. Can we make sure we? Okay, that's yeah, true. I don't want to. It's a thing. Am I talking I would gender say roles? Though? One in ten. One in ten. Yeah, maybe. Of so it's not like everybody. Yeah, of course. Of course. Get it. You know, I it's think just, it's the SSRI that's most one of every to cause 10 people male sexual dysfunction, but yeah. it's very it's a rare side effect. It's uh, not rare. It's I would say uncommon. Okay, um, but we have ways of dealing with it. That's the most important yes. thing. I, I I I do I do talk about the the sexual dysfunction up front only because if it happens, it's a total bummer, and I want them to be prepared. If they happen to be you know part of that you know that ten percent, but then I say there's hope. You know, we if this because if this thing works for you, we want to stay on it. This antidepressant, this SSRI or whatever it is, 
Um, and so let's just, again, add a boost. Are you saying <laughs> we're adding a second medication yeah. to treat a side effect of a medication? Exactly. But a low dose of it, again, just like with the mood stabilizers, a touch of like a Wellbutrin or a Boost Bar, uh, a couple of examples, that Boost Bar, they just kind of take off the edge, I guess, you know, um, but the balance of... Um, well, it hits those neurotransmitters, of, right? Exactly. Right. The, the balance of um, electrochemical shifting <laughs> that's going on uh, in those, um, you know, very delicate neural circuits. You, um, you can educate them on a drug holiday. All right, you're going to burn on Saturday. Saturday. <laughs> Skip your, don't take your medication that day. Right, yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, it, it just it creates the right balance to eliminate, basically give you the good without the bad. Are you trying you to know, say the Wellbutrin? Sweet without the bitter. Wellbutrin is uh, like Thug's Passion? I, I, <laughs> <laughs> Maybe throw a little Viagra in there. Okay, Who knows? Well, yeah. What now could pop off? Or there's like even newer ones language. now, like Cialis and all this stuff. But so, yeah, I mean, we, we have ways of dealing with that. And it just gets better. It gets better and better. We, you know, we feel that with keeping a relationship, maintaining a relationship over time, we're going to be kind of building and developing the process. At some point, we're going to get to the ideal treatment plan with dosage and frequency and time of day yeah. to where you're not even thinking about it. And then we're going to, you know, doing so well in therapy. And it's going to be a very life-changing experience. Well, real talk though, medication-wise, it's all about just weighing the benefits and the risks. <clears throat> okay. That's well, a, or the si- benefits and the side effects or benefits and risks. Yeah. You just weigh those. And if the benefits farly outweigh the risks or the side effects that you're having, the pros are going to outweigh the cons and you're going to go, you're going to continue on the medication. And if somehow the cons outweigh the pros, stop the medication. That's right. And, yep. and we're going to be there to guide you. Every step of the way. So I think uh, one other thing that I wanted to touch on is the value of group therapy. Group therapy is, I think, kind of like the unsung hero of mental health care. There are certain forms of group therapy. One in particular that comes to mind, which is 12-step facilitation, that has just been totally life-changing for many, many people even far beyond what medicine and traditional individual therapy has ever been able to accomplish. To get even more specific, I'm like talking about like AA, like Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, and now there's you know, NA, Narcotics Anonymous, and you know some other similar There's Marijuana groups. Anonymous. Right. Everybody in LA could probably use that. But it's one of these things, these rare things in life where it's like, Whatever you may see on the surface in terms of, you know, it kind of looks very simple. Oh, 12 steps. Okay, you do the 12 steps. No, dude, you have no idea. Like, it is very, very, very powerful. It's a powerful experience. The key, really, it's like it's in the matrix. <laughs> you got to get through the 12 steps, right? You have to get through. The, a lot of people fall off the wagon before they've gotten all the way there, Ooh, you know, and finished the, what they started. But it is really a transformative experience. And what I found was so, like, because I, I actually learned about um, the AA program through actually an ex-girlfriend of mine, oh. you know, many years ago, who uh, was sober. And it was the first time I'd ever been with someone who who had that kind of, you know, that background. And 
I wanted to learn more about it, you know, so I went with her to a couple of meetings. And man, I really underestimated it. And this is when I was right on the you know cusp of me going in, into psychiatry. And the thing that I took away from it that was the most powerful was the spiritual component. And I realized when I kind of like learned a little bit more what the 12 steps are about, it kind of reminded me of things that I learned growing up in church in terms of, you know, how to transform yourself from, like I said, a spiritual standpoint, right? Where it's like all about forgiving yourself, you know, self-compassion and loving yourself, where it's all about connectedness and togetherness with others, where it's all about finding something deeper inside of you. Uh, It's about finding a, a higher calling, a higher purpose that's driving you. So it's not just about you. It's about something bigger than you. It's about healing the wounds of the past. You actually have to go out uh, as one of the steps and, you know, find people that you've wronged and literally like reach out to them, not like email them, but, you know, call them or do a face to face and like lay it out there to apologize, to, to kind of have that, that sense of just penance. Like you want to, you know, lay it all out there. I remember you grew pretty good detail on this in the substance use episode. I know we did that a while No, back. we did. But what I think is so, is, you know, again, so powerful about this and bringing it back to the sports world and athletes is when you can have like a team get together and have like a process group, like an AA meeting, like that style where it's like, let's get in a room. This is private. This is just for us. Right. And have a facilitator who's a mental health professional who knows, you know, how to orchestrate, you know, how to lead. Like a players only meeting. But it's a place, but with a mental health professional, you know, who knows how to lead the team, team dynamics and how to actually get something out of the, the process of the group dynamics. I like the potential of that. You know, where it's like, hey, let's hash this out. Let's lay our burdens out here and, you know, let's learn about each other and let's heal together. Yeah. Let's connect. Let's build let's, a relationship. Yeah. So we have each other's backs. Absolutely. Then you have to. And you have to know as, as a team, you're going to battle. You know, I hear these guys in these interviews and I... You know, I was in the military, you know, so, and I, you know, I've Do you take done any offense camp. to I was, that? I was, I, I'm I, a, I was in combat. Yeah, not like on the front lines, but I was, out, I was out there doing my thing. Do you, as a, as a veteran, do you take offense to when they say we're going to battle? This is war? No, oh, not at all. Okay. No, I totally get it. No, it, 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 you know, it's the same feeling like, cause you're putting your, your life on the line, your body on the line, you know, absolutely. when you go out there um, and you, and you're training every day, you know, I, I know oh, what blood, that's sweat like. and tears go into it. And you're representing more than just yourself. And something bigger, higher calling, something very powerful. And so you have to be together. That's, that's what I remember, you know, some of the, the hardest times in my life were also some of the, the most, and, well, obviously most memorable, but just the most exciting where I learned a lot about myself. And those moments were like really in like basic training, you know, boot camp, like in the trenches where, you know, somebody gives you a helping hand where you, you pick someone else up. And that's what athletes are, are dealing with every day, especially in these games, you know, in these competitive atmospheres. I have the utmost respect for it, man. Um, it's like, it is like going to battle. All right. Uh, you said it, man. I, I like that. I like that. Yeah. So I love that model. I think group therapy could be definitely helpful and all these medications. Let's just, let's just wrap this up with a quick example of what this may look like. A case study? Yeah, sure. Cool. Let's do it. So what right. do we have this 
what do you say? What do you say? Twenty three year old male. Got it. So this guy, he failed several drug tests in college. He was actually kicked out for continuing to fail, kind of missing out on meetings. But he was such a talent. He was drafted anyways. Maybe supplemental draft. Maybe a late six rounder. Um, okay. But he's. And maybe he has a, a few good games, maybe he has one good season, but then he continue, you continue to hear rumblings. He fails more and more drug tests. Eventually, maybe he gets a suspension. Wow. Okay. All right? So, so this, kid, this kid has a problem. And let's say for whatever reason, he didn't make it in front of a psychiatrist up until now. So now we see him, we do that assessment. We notice he's irritable, he's anxious, he's impulsive, quick to anger. Seems like he's always on, on guard, he's, he's aggressive, he has low frustration tolerance and maybe poor anger management. And we find out a little bit more. His childhood is consistent with neglect, domestic violence. Maybe he came from a single-parent home, low income, and he started using marijuana at a, at a young age. That's a, lot of, that's a lot of hits. Wow. And then we find out yeah. maybe there's, there's a family history of, of, of a mood disorder, of depression and bipolar. And there's a family history of substance use. So we kind of gather in all that uh, information in our assessment. That's going to be extremely important for not only our diagnosis but our plan. So maybe we diagnose them with a depressive disorder, anxiety disorder, PTSD, cannabis use disorder. This is on the differential because we're not making any specific diagnosis right away. Okay. Let me go into that conceptualization like you're hinting at. The formulation, and diagnostic you, you formulation. You want to talk about the formulation? Yeah. Why don't we? So in this case, you got to think about a few different things, actually. You know, we talked about this before. PTSD is one of those kind of like catch-all it's the one of the great mimickers, right? It it can be so many different things. Oh yeah, it can masquerade as anxiety, Mas- or masquerade. Depression. That was the word I was looking for. Yeah. Masquerade. I, I love, love masquerade parties, That's a dude. Great word. I just Jesus. want to dance right now. Um, cannabis use disorder, right? This is something. That I, this is such an interesting to, cannabis use disorder. I, 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 we have to, we only say it because it's like it's in the DSM five. Um, but it's basically just being addicted to smoking weed, smoking. At the end of the day, why it's in, why it's in the differential is you have to take it into account. It, it, cannabis definitely can affect your motivation, your depression, your anxiety, and your PTSD. So when you come up with all this, you have to articulate it in a manner that's easily digestible to the client or the athlete or the patient. So that actually, can I say something? Yeah. That, that wasn't exactly a diagnostic formulation. Well, hey, um, that was more of a differential. <sighs> Just for the record, I was going to go into a clinical formulation. Now let's, let's let's go into the real diagnostic formulation. You want me to get in there? Go ahead. All right. So it's about a connection, and the beginning of the connection is your biology, your genetics. So when when you're looking at this patient, you have someone who has a family history positive for a mood disorder and substance use. So right then and there, this person is genetically predispositioned to a mood disorder and addiction. Mm. And then you throw in environmental stressors into that individual. So you have that genetic predisposition, then you face these stressors of neglect and domestic violence, and that brings out the illness, that brings out the depression, that brings out the anxiety. And what can that lead to? That can lead to you maybe self-medicating with marijuana because you want to use marijuana to calm down those anxious thoughts, to relax a little bit. And guess what? That can further cause issues with anxiety and irritability and also can further change your brain a little bit to make you more susceptible and kind of get you on the hamster wheel of wanting to use more and more marijuana. Any domestic violence, neglect, and trauma can cause brain changes to the amygdala and the hippocampus, which are parts of the brain that control like response to threat. And the matrix. 
you can be, <laughs> and you become hyper responsive. And then from all this, you get subsequent dysfunction. And then when that dysfunction arises, that's when you have mental illness. That's when you have a major depressive disorder or generalized anxiety disorder or post-traumatic stress disorder. We're not throwing out all these diagnoses for this one individual. So where do you go from there? You go into treatment. Like Armin talked about, who, like how, like how would you start treating this patient? Hmm. I would start an SSRI. Like a Zoloft? Um, maybe. I think, I think in this case, Zoloft would probably be the best choice, um, although there are many different options. Um, but I think Zoloft would be the best choice just because it has the best evidence to support its use for those with PTSD. And I do think there's a component there, given sort of the development of history and, and all of that. And so I would start off with Zoloft. I think that I would also add to it something for kind of like that drive for that agitation, you know, that kind of anger that you described, um, that aggressiveness. So I would prescribe a, uh, an as-needed medicine that he could take in conjunction with Zoloft. Oh man! To reduce some of that drive. Look at you. When he needs it. You so know? you're that's a, that's the adult psychiatrist. Like gabapentin right is 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 one, is one of my go-to. Oh, that's like my good old VA days. Now as a child psychiatrist, I'm a little bit more hesitant before I go to medications. Yeah, but I would I would start there, and I think what I would do is I would recommend both individual psychotherapy, probably starting with CBT. Right. Um, it's always a good place to start. And, and, you know, but CBT more for just general behavior manage- management with respect to coping with stress. Yeah. I think you can immediately try to identify an alternative coping mechanism yeah. to marijuana use. So you got to, you got, you want to shape his awareness of his thoughts and his ability to sort of regulate his emotions by being more mindful of his thoughts. CBT is a good way of doing that. Um, I would also throw in uh, another type of therapy program, more like a group environment where there's motivational interviewing and also probably 12-step facilitation. Yeah, I'm definitely getting into it. I'm know? focusing on that marijuana. And, and where there's others, other people who have addiction that he can you know, sort of learn their story, connect with them, recognize that it's more than just him, that there's many people that struggle He's not alone, but that through connecting, through understanding and getting more in touch with his spirituality, that can really, you know, overcome and over overwhelm this disease. Yeah. So I like to, I want to give you an analogy real quick with regards to marijuana. Imagine floating in the middle of the ocean and a, and a log comes by and you hold on to the, that log. That log's marijuana and the ocean's your anxiety. So the marijuana is keeping you afloat preventing you from from drowning in your own anxiety. The psychiatrists are coming along in a speedboat. Uh-oh. Where's the catch is the log's so big it doesn't fit on the boat. So would you rather <laughs> okay. continue floating on a log to oh, avoid right. drowning in your anxiety? Or are you going to hop on the boat with the psychiatrist, take, take your medications, go to therapy, and we'll boat on to the, to the beach? Wow. And we'll have a couple marks. Merrily, 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 merrily. You like that? You like that, huh? You're going to use that. (laughs) I love it. 
<laughs> so there's so many different options here and i like your style i would have a little bit of a different style definitely therapy and uh, medications and targeting the the marijuana use is, is definitely something we'd mm -hmm. go to yep. maybe if you were to uncover a trauma you do trauma focused cbt to really unpack and recreate maybe a more hopeful narrative around the childhood trauma and then yeah so we kind of wrap it up and you just want to, you want to guide, you're the patient's guide, essentially. It sounds cheesy. You're the guide. You're going to provide them the tools, whether that's therapy and medications for them uh, to get that, better. That navigation to wellness. Latitude Mental Health. We'll give them one more shout out. <laughs> All right, just guys. Just one more. I appreciate you tuning in. And um, Armin, thank you, man. That was a good conversation. Hey, for sure it was. Hey, let's, let's end the stigma. And let's continue the conversation. Mm -hmm.